The Jewish people are the only people in the world with a complete history. God not only tells the past concerning Israel, he tells the future concerning Israel. Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is senior pastor at Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We're in a study of the book of Romans, and today we move into chapter 9. This and the following two chapters comprise the national section of Romans, that part of Paul's letter that specifically addresses the Jews. These three chapters are sandwiched in between the doctrinal section, which is chapters 1 to 8, which we completed yesterday, and the practical section, chapters 12 through 16. So let's join Pastor Brogy as he talks about a passion for the lost. Take the Word of God with you and turn to the book of Romans chapter 9. If you are joining us for the very first time, we've been working our way chapter by chapter and verse by verse through this great epistle. We've been in it thus far for 20 months and we have now reached the halfway point. Now I know for some of you I am moving too slow, for others I am moving too fast. But I really want you to understand Romans because all of the great doctrinal issues of Christianity are taught in it. And if you can really understand Romans, we'll open up the whole of Scripture to you. Now, we saw last time that the plot began to thicken, and it's about to get much more intense in chapters 9 through 11. Uh, This chapter is very challenging. It's rather difficult to understand. I mean, we've been swimming in deep waters. It's going to get really deep. And perhaps it was the Apostle Peter who had this section in mind when he said that some of the things that Paul wrote were hard to understand. But even though it is a difficult section of Romans, it is not impossible to understand because God has given us the ultimate teacher of the Holy Spirit. Now, there are many critical doctrines that are taught in Romans 9 through 11 concerning sovereign election, the role of the people of Israel, the destiny of the Gentiles, And this is a passage that speaks not just to Jewish people, but to Christian Gentiles in our day. And Paul, of course, wrote everything that he wrote, as did all the authors, human authors of Holy Scripture, for our benefit. There's something here that we can learn today. If you are within the range of my voice and you have been born from above, if you are what you would call a born-again Christian, and that's the only kind of true Christians there are, according to Jesus... You must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. But if you've been born again, then you have been entrusted with a commission. Jesus said, go into all the world and to preach the gospel to all of creation. Now, unfortunately, I meet a lot of Christians who really don't take that seriously. And they think, well, when I get around to it, I'll tell someone about Jesus. Other people, when they hear about sharing their faith, they just feel rather guilty. Even as I say that this morning, you feel, oh, I know I should do it, but I don't. Still, there are others that just seem to be paralyzed by fear. They're afraid what people might think. They're afraid what they might say or not say. And so they leave the responsibility to the paid professional, to the evangelist, to the missionary, to the pastor, and they miss the joy, the privilege, the responsibility, and the reward that God gives to those who are faithful. Now, we've seen that the apostle Paul, in the introduction to Romans, had just the opposite kind of heart. He said, I am under obligation to preach the gospel. He said, I am eager to preach the gospel. He said, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. 
And now this morning, he cracks the door and he gives us not a theological reason, though it is theological, but he also opens the door so that we can see the man's heart. We can see what it is that made him tick, why it is that he had such a passion for the lost. And I want us to investigate the uh, origins of his passion so that we could share in it today. I want us to share in the same kind of enthusiasm that Paul had when it came to winning people to Christ. And I can't think of anything that is more exhilarating, more exciting than introducing someone to Christ. I want to ask you a question I've asked thousands of people over the years. What is the single most important event that has ever happened in your life? Well, if you've been saved, there's only one answer. You'll say the single biggest event in my human history was the day I received Jesus Christ as my Lord. And indeed, the Bible teaches that is the most significant decision of life because you're transformed from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. It's a marvelous miracle that takes place. Well, if that's the single most important event in your human history, what's the greatest thing that you could share with another person? And of course, how they could come to know Jesus Christ. And yet how sad it is that so few Christians today share their faith. Bill Bright, the founder of Campus Crusade for Christ before he went to heaven, said that so few people share Christ today that on average it takes about a thousand laymen and six pastors to lead a single individual into the kingdom. So obviously there's something very wrong with what is happening today. And so Paul gives us an autobiographical statement about what it is that made him tick what it is that gave him such a passion for winning people to Jesus. And that's what we're going to look at today. Now, if you have a Bible, I want you to follow along. If you don't have a Bible, come to one of our Meet the Pastor meetings. We'll get one to you. But you need to bring your Bible to church. It's what God is going to use. You'll get 50% more out of any sermon I preach if you have a copy of the Word of God in your lap. Romans chapter 9, beginning now in verse 1. Paul says, I am telling the truth in Christ." I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Now, before we dig into the finer details, let's remember the context. Again, my desire by the time we are done with Romans is that you can think your way all the way through it. It is indeed the constitution of Christianity. And if you can understand Romans, it will open up the whole of Scripture to you. And we saw that if you read the book over and over again, you would see that there are three clear divisions that God gave us to the book of Romans. Chapters 1 through 8, chapters 9 through 11, and chapters 12 through 16. As you can see in this slide, chapters 1 through 8 first deals with God's righteousness as it is revealed. In the introduction to Romans, we learn the theme of the whole epistle is the righteousness of God. And in the first section, he shows us how God's righteousness is revealed. In one word, Romans 1 through 8 is the doctrinal section. When you come to chapter 9, which we begin today in 9 through 11, it is a picture of God's righteousness vindicated or proved or defended, you could say. Most of us know that chapter 8 ends with that great statement that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And yet chapter 9 opens with a statement of Israel's rebellion and unbelief. 
And so the thinking Christian in the first century would automatically say, well, if nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is the Messiah, and if Israel rejected her Messiah, and if God loved Israel with an everlasting love, as he repeatedly says through the Old Testament prophets, then why is it that God apparently has rejected Israel? And so Paul is going to vindicate the righteousness of God in this section by proving that it was not God who rejected Israel, it was Israel who rejected God. And in spite of their rejection, God is going to keep some promises that he made to them. And so this is the national section of the book. It deals with Israel in one word. Go home this week and just read it one sitting, 9 through 11. It will be very helpful to you as we study it. When you come to chapter 12 and verse 1, there's another structural marker that lets you know you're coming into a new section, and it's the word therefore. It's what we might call the applicational or practical section where God's righteousness is applied. So section 1 is doctrinal. God's righteousness is manifested. It's revealed. Section 2 is a national where God's righteousness is vindicated and section three is practical where God's righteousness is applied. Now I've already stated to you that you could take each of these three sections and in turn divide them into three sections. We've already seen in the first section that there are three great doctrines that are taught. First, the doctrine of condemnation. Paul proves that everyone, no matter what their stature, whatever their religion may be or lack of it, whether they are dedicated Jews or hardcore pagans, everyone is guilty, everyone is sinful, and everyone is under the just condemnation of God. And so before he is able to give the good news, he has to give the bad news. He has to paint a picture of God's holiness, of God's righteousness, leaving everyone speechless in a need of a savior. And so beginning in chapter three and in verse 21, he moves from the doctrine of condemnation to the doctrine of justification. We saw that the word justified means to declare righteous. And so the dilemma is how can a righteous, holy God declare an unrighteous person who is worthy of the wrath of God as righteous in his sight? And of course, the answer is the cross of Christ. And then in chapters 6 through 8, as he describes our salvation further, he deals with the doctrine of sanctification. Paul is not content to say that God has declared us righteous and that we are saints by calling. He also is interested in our practice that we become righteous in our everyday experience. And so in 6 through 8, he tells us that the cross dealt not just with the penalty of sin, but the very power of sin so that we are now able to make some new choices. Now, as you come to the end of chapter 8, it appears that you could skip 9 through 11, and it could have just begun with chapter 12 and verse 1. It could have read like this. Nothing will be able to separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then he could have said, therefore... I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present yourself as a living and holy sacrifice. That would seem like a natural transition in light of the fact that God has saved us, that God has secured us, that God is sanctifying us. In light of this, the child of God should offer himself as a holy and living sacrifice. And if Paul had left out chapters 9 through 11, it would not have broken the flow of the book one bit. But chapter 12 does not follow chapter 8. Chapter 9 does. 
And so he opens with a rather somber note. I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. And so he ends chapter 8 on the mountaintop of rejoicing, and he enters into chapter 9 with deep sorrow. Why such a drastic change of mood? Verse 3 of this chapter. He said, For I could wish that I myself were cursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. His heart was broken over the Jewish rejection that Jesus is Lord. Now, the very first time I was in college, the very first time I ever heard Romans preached, I was taught that 9 through 11 was a parenthesis of sort, that it was an aside that Paul is making, and that it's not really connected and interrelated to the rest of the book. It's like getting a a letter from your friend over their summer vacation, and they tell you all the different places they went, and then in the middle of the letter, they go into this aside about their great aunt living up in Vermont and all the details, and then they come back to the message. And some people view this section of Romans like that. But if you read 9 through 11 very carefully, you discover it's not an interruption at all. It's actually a word of affirmation to the child of God of how great God's love is for us. That God, when he makes a promise, he is going to keep it because he is a promise-keeping God. That the promises that God made to the people of Israel will indeed be kept. And so as you come through this section, it in turn divides into three sections. Chapter 9 deals with Israel's past election. Out of all the nations of the world, God chose the Jewish nation to be the nation from which Messiah would come. Jesus was a Jew. Whether a man says that he likes Jewish people or not, he must deal with the fact that Jesus is a Jew. And 9 tells us why it is that God chose Israel as the nation out of all the peoples of the world from which the Christ is going to come. Now, of course, when you come into the 10th chapter, you have to answer the question. John affirms he came to his own, but his own received him not. Why not? Chapter 10 will tell us. Chapter 10 will tell us why the majority of Israel to this day is in unbelief. Uh, In the Old Testament, there are two pictures of Messiah. There's a picture of him where he is the sovereign ruler, where he rules the nations with a rod of iron. And there is a picture where he is the suffering servant, where he dies a substitutionary death as a payment for sin. Well, remember, the Jews in Paul's day had become self-righteous, just like many Gentiles in our day. They thought they were good enough. In fact, most of them thought they were better than Jesus. And so if you were to gravitate to the picture of a suffering servant or as a sovereign king, you'd want the latter, especially in light of the fact that you're in the time of the Gentiles that the prophet Daniel had spoken of. And at this point, you're under the heel of Rome and they are an oppressive nation towards the Jewish people. And really, because they were so self-sufficient, because they thought they were righteous, they're just like the average man on the street today. And someone here listening to me today, I'm sure there are some, as there are every week, who are already arguing in their minds with me. What's all this stuff about being born again and being saved? God knows that I'm just fine and my religion is okay. And to such religious people, as he said to his own Jewish nation, he said, it is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. And so chapter 10 is going to give us an explanation of Israel's rejection. Turn over the page to 10.1. Notice 
Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God, speaking of the Jews, my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. They're zealous, all right, but they have a misdirected zeal. They're like a lot of people who are in the world's religions today. You will often hear people reason, but pastor, they're so sincere. You mean to tell me that just because they don't believe in Jesus, that God is going to condemn them to hell. They are as sincere as you are over your faith in Jesus. And Paul is going to dismantle the fallacy of that argument that one can be sincere but sincerely wrong. And so he says in verse 3 of the 10th chapter, for not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. This is a perfect description of so many people today. Jews and Gentiles who try to establish their own plan of salvation because it seems right and proper to them. There's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is death. And it may seem right and logical that if you're good enough, you can achieve salvation, but the Bible says you cannot. And so the Jewish people were blinded in their self-righteousness. So over chapter 9, you have hopefully written the words, Israel's past election. And chapter 9 is a picture of God's sovereignty. You might want to put that there as well. In chapter 10, I hope you have written over the top of it, Israel's present rejection. In chapter 10 is a picture of God's justice. And over chapter 11, you should have the words, Israel's future restoration. That God's not done with the Jewish people yet. The Jewish people are the only people in the world with a complete history. God not only tells the past concerning Israel, he tells the future concerning Israel. And so in chapter 9, he shows God is absolutely sovereign in his decision to choose them as a nation. In chapter 10, he is going to show that he is absolutely just in dealing with their sin of unbelief. And then in chapter 11, he's going to show his marvelous grace and his his plan to restore them in the future. And so in chapter 9, he deals with the past, and 10 with the present, and then 11 with the future. And this is really important because this is going to ask and answer a lot of questions like what happens to the people of Israel now that they do not believe in Jesus? Now that they have rejected their Messiah, how will God relate to them? Will he toss them aside? Have they lost their status as the chosen people of God? And the way you answer these questions is going to determine how you view chapter 9. And this is why chapter 9 is a chapter of such intense debate. Because in some people's minds, beginning with Augustine, as furthered through the Roman Catholic Church, and even through some of the reformers like Luther and Calvin, they said God was done with Israel that the church is the new Israel, that we have usurped the role of Israel and God has no future plans for the Jew. And so the way they interpret chapter 9 is far different than I believe the way Paul would have explained it. Now, that's the door cracked. And this is again important because some people are going to come to chapter 9 and they're going to teach that God created some people in this world to be destined to hell and he created and elected and made other people in this world to go to heaven. And the only reason you're going to heaven if you said yes, they would say, is because God first said yes to you and he purposed in his heart to say no to others. Now, Calvinism 
and that's a big word, and we're going to explain it and look at it in depth. It comes and goes in the history of the church in terms of emphasis for about 100 years in America. It was at a very low rate, but now it's up again. And there's a lot of people who are very strong, outspoken Calvinists. And so this is a question I am often asked. So I want you to stay with me in chapter 9. We're not going to cover it in one week. We're just going to look at the introduction to the ninth chapter today in the first three verses. And I suspect we'll be here at least seven weeks working our way through it. So that's where we've been and that's where we're going. And so this morning you can see the title of the message is A Passion for the Lost. And unlike so many Christians today, Paul had a passion for the lost. The Lord Jesus went up, the Holy Spirit came down, and the church went out, and they turned the world upside down. And you think about it, it's really amazing because this was a people who had no buildings, no Bible colleges, no seminary degrees, no television, no radio, no printing press, but they had the message of the gospel and they were willing to go tell it to a lost world. And I believe one of the greatest, most passionate men who ever shared his faith was indeed the apostle Paul. So let's take a peek into his heart today and see if we can see what it is that made him tick. If you're using your note-taking outline, three simple points. First, I want you to see that the apostle Paul had a sincere concern. He has a sincere concern. Look again at the opening two verses. I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. Now, again, it's important to link these two verses to the overall context. Who is Paul talking about and for whom did he have such sorrow and grief? And of course, the answer is the Jews. And for what did he have this unceasing grief and great sorrow over? Well, we just read it in chapter 10 and verse 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God is for their salvation. And so Paul deeply cares for his Jewish brethren. He describes them here in verse 3 as his kinsmen according to the flesh. But while he is related to them physically, while they are kinsmen according to the flesh, they are not his kinsmen according to the spirit. And that's what really matters. And so in verse 1 of chapter 9, Paul is saying, God the Holy Spirit bears witness with me that I have a deep concern and love for the Jewish people. And I find it rather interesting that he first tells of his special burden for the Jewish people before he ever goes into a great theological discourse about their election as a nation, about God's judgment on them as a nation, and on God's future restoration of them as a nation. I'm telling the truth in Christ, not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit. So Paul is giving them a picture of his heart. And it's often been said, and it is certainly illustrated not just here, but all the way through Scripture, that people do not care how much you know until they know how much you care. And so Paul wants them to see how much he cares. Now, it's rather odd that he goes from joy unspeakable, as the King James renders the end of eight, to great sorrow and unceasing grief. But that is often the reality concerning people you love. One moment you can have unspeakable joy, and another day you can have unceasing grief. And so in chapter uh, 9 and verse 1, he deals with the reality of his grief. In verse 2, he deals with the intensity of his grief. And then as we will see in verse 3, he deals with the sacrifice of his grief. 
And so for those who think that Paul was opposed to Jewish people, now that he was a Christian, a Jewish Christian, now that he had come to believe that Jesus was the Messiah, remember, how did they view Paul? They viewed Paul as a Judas. They viewed him, the average Jew in his day, as one who had betrayed Judaism. He had been commissioned by the Sanhedrin. They were the supreme court of religion in that day. And the Sanhedrin had commissioned the Apostle Paul to go out and help to destroy Christianity. And this one who initially sought to destroy it and to disassemble it has a marvelous conversion on the Damascus Road and now he is defending it and he's protecting it and he's promoting it. And some would think, well, in light of that fact, in light of the fact that Paul is now promoting it, and in light of the fact that the Jewish people are against him, that he doesn't really love them. If you want to have kind of a flavor for how Paul uh, was viewed by the Jewish people, just read Acts 13 through 28. Uh, I could compare them possibly today to a Muslim who's against the Christian. I'm not talking about a westernized Muslim, but I mean a Muslim who's a true Muslim who takes the Quran seriously that says to destroy those who believe in the Trinity. There's just a, a hatred. They view us as opponents to what they believe. Now, we're called to love even our enemies, and we need to win these people into the kingdom. But that's the kind of spirit that Paul felt from his own Jewish brethren. And so when they looked at him, they thought, he's preaching about our greatest prophet, Moses. He is preaching about our sacrificial system is antiquated. We need to silence this man. And they tried to. When Paul describes the persecution he received from them, he said in 2 Corinthians 11, five times, I received from the Jews 39 lashes. I have been on frequent journeys in dangers for my countrymen. On one occasion, more than 40 zealous Jews packed and covenanted together that they would not eat anything until Paul was dead. But in spite of their opposition, on one day they tried to stone him and leave him as dead. He still loved them. Now, when Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he made a statement from the book of Deuteronomy that is repeated many times in the New Testament. And it's a very important principle for Christians to practice even today. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 13, every fact is to be confirmed by the testimony of two or three witnesses. So in practicing what he preaches, Paul calls, in essence, to the stand three witnesses to show that he really loves the Jewish people, that his sincere concern is real. Notice the first witness is the Lord Jesus here in verse 1. I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. So he's calling the Lord Jesus to the stand. The omniscient, sovereign, gracious Christ who knew absolutely everything about the Apostle Paul, who understood his heart and all of his motives, he said he can bear witness to the truthfulness that I love my Jewish brethren. The parallel today is when a man in a court of law puts his hand on the Bible and he says, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth, so help me God. We've seen every president since George Washington in effect do the same thing as they put their hand on the Bible. And it is an, a statement concerning the veracity and the integrity of what they are promising to do. So Paul says, listen, I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. I'm calling on my Lord and Savior as my witness. Paul's conscience had been sharpened and sanctified through the power of the Holy Spirit. 
And unlike those whose conscience has been seared or hardened because of their hate for God and the things of God, Paul's heart beat for the love of Christ. And so his conscience couldn't steer him wrong. And indeed, as we will see, Paul, like God, loved the Jews so much so that were it possible, he would cut himself off from Christ for the sake of his countrymen. To listen again to today's study entitled, A Passion for the Lost, use the Search the Scriptures app, available for smartphones and tablets, or listen online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also call us at 877-787-7478 and request a CD or DVD copy of today's program. When you call, just ask for program ROM43. Tomorrow we continue our look at a passion for the lost. Join us then as we search the scriptures.